Good morning. I'm a little bit of a perfectionist, so I have to fix the rug. It was off a little bit. <laughs> it is so nice to be with you guys. Uh, back in January, I emailed Jonathan and said, can I please come speak at your church? And he was nice enough to let me come, so I'm really, really grateful to be here with you guys. After the last service, someone said, how did you come up with all of this stuff? And <laughs> I, I gently shared, it's been my journey. So I'm really happy to be here with you guys to kind of maybe give some answers and, and see if we can help you guys out in a little bit of um, some ways, maybe where you're hurting. I start off by saying, it took me a long time to remember who I am. Relationships have so colored me that it often felt like I didn't know if the paint that had been splattered on me was true or if there was a layer underneath that I had to get back to. We're going to look at two different things today to kind of give us a, a nice little setup here. One of the first ones is being detached from and the second one is being enmeshed with. And I'll describe exactly what I mean by that. But I'll give you some stories to help kind of guide us. When I was little, I had this petrifying anxiety that my mom would drop me off at kindergarten, would drive away in a car, get killed in a car accident, and never come back for me. So every day at age five, I said goodbye to my mom for what I thought was the last time. All day long at school, I was filled with this petrifying anxiety all the normal kids would be playing and I would be sleeping on a mat because I thought that my mom had died somewhere and I just didn't hear about it yet. Unfortunately, this sensation of being detached from continued. As I grew up and in a Hispanic culture, I realized that I wasn't quite as macho as the other children. I was a little bit more feminine and I liked fashion <laughs> and something was happening in me that wasn't normal. But I, I got teased for it pretty badly. I remember I was coming back to school after an orthodontist appointment once and I had my favorite pair of pants on and a t-shirt and my, my, it was really cool. I had this little zip-up bag and it just had one zipper, it went over the shoulder. It was a Lisa Frank bag for any of you guys. <laughs> go back to the 1980s with me. <laughs> um, but I walked down that hallway like I owned it. It was my own little catwalk. But it didn't take long for two of my peers to scoff at me and look at me with such disgust and disdain. And again, I experienced being detached from. And one more time when I was in high school, I remember I was wearing a terry cloth button-up shirt. It was cool back then, you know, early 90s from the Gap. <laughs> and tucked into my boot-cut black pants. And uh, I was coming down the hall, and two boys every day after school would say, man, does he always have to dress like that? Essentially, I walked around feeling as though there was this sticker on my forehead. Gay, faggot, dirty, damaged, disgusting. That sensation of being dis detached from, it almost felt like people were picking like these balls of mud and just throwing them right at me. And over time it was the sensation of, I, 
I, I deserve these. Everybody's throwing them at me. There's something about me. When we feel that sensation in our body, what we're actually feeling is shame. Shame is never a cognitive thought. Shame is a somatic, a bodily experience. And I became accustomed to it very well. Because I felt like I had this sticker on my forehead, I wanted to protect myself, so I started playing the enmeshment game. By and large, enmeshment is whenever a child is nurturing a parent. We would call that enmeshment. So something like, um, what's a good example? Uh, I can't talk about how I lied. Because if I show you, mom, dad, that I messed up, I'm going to hurt your feelings. So because it's my job to take care of you, I'm going to stay tight-lipped. I learned enmeshment um, at a very early age, um, taking care of others by hiding my femininity. If I don't come out to my mom and dad, I will keep them happy. They're assemblies of God, Pentecostal ministers, Hispanic family. If they find out who I am, I will ruin them. That's enmeshment. It's my job to take care of someone else. Shame wants us to hide, and we use something called the illusion of control. I have this illusion that I can make you happy. I have this illusion that I can make you mad. I have this illusion that however I perform, it will make you fill in the blank. That's an illusion of control, and many times we hear that lesson from the church. If I don't behave well enough, God will spit me out of his mouth, I'm lukewarm. We have this illusion that we are literally controlling God with our behavior. I wanna show you something up here. This chart saved my life in some, may, in some pretty big ways and I took it and updated it a little bit. It's a little hard to read. I can email it to you if you like, but don't worry, I have it memorized, so I got you covered. <laughs> so we're gonna start off today with looking at the love avoidance side. The reason I wanna talk about this today is because it gives us a very profound way of understanding how we've lost our God-created image. Who was Isaac Archuleta before he started being covered. And if he had never been covered, how would he have shown up in relationships? That's what we're here to talk about today. So the love avoidant, when I was in this phase of the chart, I was, uh, I was dating someone. He was at the back of the church and he was new. And like the good pastor's kid I was, I went up to him and introduced myself and there was just such deep sadness in his eyes. And out of this love avoidant energy, I said, I can rescue him. I'm funny, I'm smart, charismatic. I can rescue him from his pain. Talk about the illusion of control, right? But I honestly believed that was my relational duty. I am here to perform for others. I like to call it the ta-da's. You know, it's like, ta-da, look at how I am. Ta-da, look at how cool I am. But where it becomes very uncomfortable 
is when we begin saying, ta-da, I'm keeping you happy by hiding what's really honest about me. Ta-da, I'm keeping you comfortable with who I am by not sharing deep vulnerability. It's my job to take care of you. What we do when we're practicing some love avoidance stuff is we will literally trap ourselves to be a performer in relationships. What the other person is bonding to us is more than our show, more than who we really are. If we were even going to think about this in a spiritual lens, God only has the ability to bond with our show more than who we are as God's created children. So when we get overwhelmed, what we're going to do is we're going to create this incredible distance. I have to get away because every time they walk into the room, I have to ta-da. So I'm just going to step over here real quietly and get away so that I don't have to ta-da today. But then what we do, we're up in the top purple. I am so guilty because I've left this poor thing all by themselves and it's my job to rescue them. So I lean back in and say, ta-da! Or I'm afraid that I've been away for too long. I'm afraid they're going to leave me. So I better get back in there and ta-da! Or I'm out. My performance isn't enough for this person. It's not convincing them. Whatever we do, we're going to hop back right into that relationship or the same one right at the beginning, saying, ta-da, look at who I am. And the cycle goes and goes and goes. On the love addict side, we have someone who is uh, used to being detached from with incredible pain. When I was in my love addict relationship, it was the sensation of this tall, muscular man who wanted to take care of me. And he fit my fantasy. I'll back up a little bit. When I was nine years old, I, I remember praying outside of church, God, just send me a best friend. Send me a best friend, someone who looks like me and talks like me, who finds the same interests as me, another boy who will teach me how to play football because I just want to belong. And I created this fantasy out of pain. He'll look like this, he'll talk like this, he'll smile when he sees me, he'll teach me how to play football, and then I pulled this fantasy down and I began saying, okay, who's going to match this fantasy? And I was like, ooh, he's here. And I began saying, you don't look like that, try harder. Uh, you don't fit this either, perform for me. You're not soothing me the right way. And what I was doing was violating healthy and normal boundaries. Why don't you want to go out with me on Friday night? If I mattered to you, you would want to stay. We get in there and we violate these very normal and healthy boundaries. So at this point, when the love addict is kind of doing their thing in, in terms of violating boundaries, the love avoidant is starting to say, yeah, this isn't working for me. It's going to take a couple steps over here and distance myself. And right as that happens, the love addict totally triggered. I'm disposable, I'm lost, I don't matter. Where did they go? Why did they leave me? Was it a joke to begin with? It's this incredible sensation of panic. And then we go up into this nice little white bubble and we obsess and medicate. 
I'm going to text them 17 times. I'm going to drive by their house. I'm going to email them. It's very painful. But as the love avoidant comes back in, so does the love addict. Ta-da! Oh, you're back. My fantasy. Boop! We're going to do this thing. We're going to be just fine. We're going to talk about this a little bit tomorrow as we break down shame. But we will always soothe ourselves with the one thing that shames us. I had a rough day. I've been good with my diet. I just deserve this chocolate cake. We eat it down and now we say, darn it. I just shamed myself with the one thing that was supposed to soothe me. For me in college, it was, I just need to release. I need to have fun. I need to be a human and I just have to laugh a little bit. I'm gonna drink some alcohol. Way too much alcohol later. Look at who I've become. I need to feel a certain way, so I'm going to soothe myself with something. And we get trapped here. Shame distorts our identity so much that we begin saying, I am this person. This is who I am. And when we live in these cycles for too long, we literally begin saying, this is who I am. I do perform for you. I'm not connected to the image that God created for me. I'm more connected to the way that I've been taught to show up in relationships. Again, it took me a long time to figure out who I am. I love that Kayla read uh, the passage for us this morning. When we start at the, at the top of the, the text that we're working with today, it says, the woman went to the well at about the sixth hour of the day. That means it was probably about noon. When the sun rose, that was the first hour, so six hours later, we're looking at about noon, one o'clock. It's hot. The reason why this is important for us is because she shouldn't have gone in the middle of the day. It was customary for all the women to travel together to fetch the water in the early morning hours uh, because it, it wasn't hot. So why was she there alone and in the middle of the day? Because she had some shame. We read later on, Jesus says, now that you know who I am, go back and tell everybody, go get your husband. And she says, Rabbi, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You have five husbands and a boyfriend. She's at the well in the middle of the day because she's shamed. She's got her own sticker on her forehead. I find this really important, what Jesus does. A couple of things. He was, well, first of all, a Jew should not have been talking to a Samaritan. These two communities did not get along. So this woman is kind of like, uh, why are you talking to me? This is not normal. Even more than that, why are you a Jewish rabbi who's not supposed to talk to women talking to me? Now this is even more awkward. What is going on here? But Jesus, you know, he asks her for some water and she says, you don't got a rope or a bucket, uh, what you gonna do? Well, can you give me some? Sure, absolutely. And then he goes on to say, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't drink from this well. You would drink the water that I have for you that will never, ever 
leave you thirsting again. I find that fascinating. When we think about that, we think that what God is offering her is a behavioral change. You've got five husbands and a, and a boyfriend. <laughs> the water that you're about to drink is going to change you. You're never going to be thirsty again. We call it morality. We're going to clean you up. Your behavior is gone. I don't think that's what Jesus was doing. I think he said, daughter, you're thirsty. You have five husbands and a boyfriend. You're thirsty. You've been detached from. And you're looking for someone who can come and finally fill up this reservoir. You're thirsty. This isn't about behavior. I don't, five husbands and a boyfriend, sure. But you're thirsty. What I have to offer you will never leave you thirsting again. And I think what Jesus is talking about here is an identity change. It's remembering who we are as, at our first beginnings. One of my favorite concepts from seminary, I really needed it at the time, was the Imago Dei, the image of God. Genesis chapter 2 says, I was created in the image and likeness of God. I really couldn't grasp this until I had a nephew, Jackson. Jackson has, we're Hispanic, right? But Jackson has red hair and blue eyes and looks nothing like us. <laughs> but there's something about his smile and there's something about his humor. Jackson doesn't even, he doesn't even know I'm watching oftentimes, but I'm just in love with that kiddo. And it was my love for Jackson that began to change the way I understood God's love for me. If I could look at something so precious and fall in love, then maybe God too could look at me, see that sticker on my forehead and wipe it off and say, hey buddy, you're thirsty. I have something that's gonna leave you never, ever thirsting again. I'm kind of a nerd, so I like to study biology. I don't know what it is, but I really like trees. I always like to use trees as metaphors for these. You know, the love avoidant is like an orange tree, and it's like, oh, God is coming. Oh, Got to push out some oranges for you. Yeah. He's coming. Oh, Ta-da, look at all my oranges. I perform so well, and that's how I earn my value, and look at how well I made God happy. Whereas the love addict is saying, oh crap, the wind is coming. I have no roots in the ground, and I'm going to topple over. Someone please come put a kickstand underneath me, because I'm going down. When we put a seed in the soil, it doesn't get to choose where it stands. It doesn't get to choose how tall or short it will grow. It doesn't get to choose what bark it has or what kind of leaves will come and create its beautiful canopy. In fact, it doesn't do much more than that. The sun will heat up the water on the leaves and because of evaporation, the sun literally pulls water up through the roots all the way through the trunk and out. The tree literally 
just stands there with no choice in the matter. I didn't choose to be a short in stature, somewhat feminine, Hispanic male in a Christian world that told me I was disposable. But all I get to do is stand in the sun and say, God, this is who you made me to be. I'm enough when I'm not performing. And my roots go so far into the ground, I don't need a kickstand. I am whole. That to me is a water that will never leave you thirsting again. How do we undo some of this? If you got some love avoidant in you, it's time to learn about your inherent value. Your performances are pretty cool. But I can't bond to only your performance. If you're a love addict, or if you feel that in your body, sometimes you're stronger than you think. But that's a painful lesson to work through. But you can do it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today and for these people. I thank you that we are a collection of seeds that fell exactly where you wanted us, that blossomed exactly how you wanted us, that talk and swim and move about the earth in the way that you wanted us to. And as we find healthy relationships, let us first find a healthy understanding of ourselves. Please help us drink that water that will never leave us thirsting again. I love you so much. Amen.